Thank you for listening to our New Life Christian Center podcast. Stay tuned after the sermon for more ways to connect with us. So let's pray together, shall we? Father, we thank you today. We bless you, Lord Jesus. You are a great and awesome God. We just ask, Lord, as we open your word, that you would speak to us because your word is living and active. We also, Father, present ourselves for the separation between the thoughts and intentions of our heart. Father, we believe that your word will align us with your will. And so we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we are putting right along in the book of Proverbs. We're in chapter 22. And let's begin to read the first verse. It says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. Now, by the time you read 22 chapters of Proverbs, you will see certain themes and certain things that sound a little bit like they're repetitive, and they are. But you want to pay attention as you study it. If you, if you spend time in Proverbs over the period of a few years of your life, what you'll find is there are certain words that, that can jump out at you. So notice it says a good name. This is not just talking about your name, but rather the reputation. So in, in, in Old Testament and New Testament language, but more in the Old Testament language, the idea behind a name represented more than just a name. It represented character. It represented function. And, and it represented heritage. And so oftentimes the, the surname of people didn't come in until somewhat recently, historically. And so you were the son of somebody. And so you, you would be, you know, Glenn, son of Glenn, would be my, my dad's name was Glenn as well. And, and so you, you would see that, and then that would represent certain characteristics and traits. You would also find that, that you didn't have a lot of options of not being what your father was in, in Old Testament times. When you think of the advantages that you might have today of being able to choose certain occupations and things like that. It just wasn't that way at all. Uh, uh, back then. And so this, this name represents more than an identifying uh, characteristic of, of how does your mom call you when it's time for you to be good. You know, it's not that, just that. It's also bigger. But then notice what it says. It says, a good name is to be chosen. Notice that, that the, the writer gives us the opportunity here to choose the characteristics associated with who we are as a person. The writer gives us the opportunity to choose the characteristics that are associated to us as a person. You can choose your character attributes. Okay? Now, I don't want to slap any of you too hard, but you are not a product of your parental heritage or your environment or your culture. You're a product of your choices. Okay? Now, you can live where choices are, are, are bound by certain traits, certain environment, and certain cultural things. Okay? It would be hard for you in, in rural America to grow up and be a lot different from the, the kind of cultural environmental things here. You know, the idea of being an agri- uh, uh, economy and the idea of, of animals and, and all that kind of, I mean, you know, we're, we're missing kids today because of the fair. You know, <laughs> the, the idea of, of 4-H and some of those kinds of things in urban and suburban areas is less than what it is out here. That's what I mean by environment and culture. That does affect us a little bit, okay? But you're still a product of your choices. 
So you can grow up in that, be exposed to that, and choose a different pathway. And the reason I'm making such a big deal out of this is that a lot of times what, what you might have done and what kids might do today is to blame what they do and who they are on where they came from. Specifically, parenting things that they might see as being short of. It's always amazing to me. Let me, let me put this in non-parenting terms. I don't listen to people who don't understand the Bible tell me how I'm misinterpreting the Bible. You understand what I'm saying? When somebody comes at you and says, well, you know, this ought to be this way. Well, do you spend your whole life in the Bible? And I'm not saying I'm prideful about it. I'm just saying that you've got to be careful where you get your advice. Well, your 12-year-old in public school is spending a huge amount of time getting intellectual stimulation from another 12-year-old. They may not know what parenting looks like, but I will guarantee you they would be a better parent than you are. That makes sense? And so who they are is often judged in their own minds by what they experience and what they've gone through and all that kind of stuff. And so um, um, it's not just that. It's to be chosen. The emphasis on choice, biblically, is, is really important. You can choose to be influenced by a different set of rules. You can grow up being raised by a bunch of, of, of wolves and cavemen and make different choices, right? You, you can have the worst father in the world and make different choices. You say, well, it's just not that easy. I didn't say it was easy. I just said you can. Are you tracking with me? And so when it says a good name, the character behind your name is to be chosen. And notice that he makes that same comparison he's made throughout the, the book of Proverbs to wealth or to riches. If you choose the things of God first, it brings the riches or the other stuff with it. Seek you first the kingdom, and all these things shall be added to you. I, wisdom, bring with it riches and honor. Old Testament and New Testament process. Are y'all tracking with me? And so, so your choices of, of, of biblical integrity will bring with it the very things that you would work your head off trying to get without the Bible. Seeking first in the Bible brings those things with it. Good preaching, Glenn. Way to go. Loving silver rather, or loving favor rather than silver and gold. Now notice again that he makes a value comparison. Now probably very few of you, if any of you, are actually tracking the ongoing price of a troy ounce of gold or a troy ounce of silver. Okay, And so you have no way of necessarily processing in the real world what they might have been saying. These were the two most valuable and may still be pretty close to the two most valuable metals that we can mine out of the earth. And they're, they're, they're rare or rarer than, than some others. And so they, they come with it an, intri an, interest, an inside value. Put the word in that you want to use. They carry with them an intrinsic value. They are, they are valuable because of what they are. So when he says, I'm taking this favor over these things, then to have a biblical mindset, you must choose the inherent value in favor 
see it as greater than the inherent value of, of, of silver and gold. See, you can't just say to yourself, well, okay, I do that. No, because we recognize to some degree the value of precious metals, right? I mean, many of us potentially would buy precious metal as a hedge against stupid, Right? Government spends money, prints money, and all that kind of stuff. And this stuff not only has an, an intrinsic value, but it has a hedging value, meaning that, that it, it maintains its value in spite of what else is going on in the world, generally speaking. And it's, and it's, not, it's not investment advice. Don't, don't hear this wrong. I'm just saying that, that we have all of this association of value with it. And it says, loving favor... Rather than, it doesn't say loving favor over these things. It says in the place of these things. It means that these things that are chosen by the world to be extremely valuable need to be a secondary understanding that favor is chosen and loved over these things. This is not something easy to do. We live in a materialistic world that makes this choice extremely difficult. Right? When we see the representation of value, we are oftentimes drawn to it. You say, how do you know that? Because people keep stealing. Duh. Are you, are you tracking with me? If you have something that I want, one of the ways for me to get it is to break into your house and take it. You say, well, why don't you do that? Well, because I love my freedom, right, more than I love the stuff. So I don't break in. Now, that's the first step, right? I could potentially attempt to manipulate you. Hey, I see. I had a, a youth pastor in my church, in our church in, in uh, Nebraska, and he was given by two relatives from different sides of the branch of his family the same leather uh, letter jacket from the University of Nebraska. Okay, so he had two of them. Now, when he had two of them, one person said to him, that is really a nice jacket. I wished I had one of those. Okay, so he comes to me with this story, right? And, and he says, here's the deal, Pastor, I have two. He said, but I don't want to give one of them away. Now, so we could manipulate based on our understanding. Listen, how many of you buy into the tax the rich idea? Because they have too much. No one needs that much. See, we have to love favor, the favor of God. And we do not know, you cannot possibly know what kinds of intellectual, personal, and spiritual sacrifices that people make to get to that place where they got more money than they could ever spend, and it looks like they're making more. How do you love favor? You have to attach a value, normally it's an experiential value, of the favor of God over the experiential value of wealth and riches, silver and gold. Are we together? You say, Pastor, I don't know if I can do that. Exactly. How do you increase the understood value of favor? How many of you know what biblical favor looks like? See, 
I know in general what gold and silver looks like. I've seen it. I've seen bars of it. Now, I know it doesn't look that way until it's refined, but I've seen it refined. Favor doesn't look that way until it's refined. Right? So how do we refine the favor? We have to begin to process what does it look like to be in the favor of God? See, he did things through the sacrifice of Jesus that we should recognize that puts us in a favorable condition. So for an example, without respect to what happens in our everyday life, the favor of God says, because of the the accepted sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the favor of God says, because of the accepted sacrifice of Jesus Christ, this is not our home. So you already know something about favor. Favor says, I live from a different set of functional realities. If all you do is live on this horizontal plane with your realities and all that you can see, hear, taste, touch, feel, smell, whatever, you know, that's what you go by. Well, there's a higher reality. That's the favor of God. You actually don't get to see that reality in, it, in, its, in its fullness. You don't get to see it till you accept Jesus Christ. That's the favor of God. You say, well, that's simple. I just, I live in that every day. I understand, but there's more, right? So here's your, you know, if I was to close this service down now, I would just say, listen, go home and find as many principled, biblical understandings that you can pull up over favor. God chose you before you had an opportunity to choose him. Grace is the single greatest expression of God's favor. It is the most unfair thing on the planet. Because of what Jesus did, you get to experience what God has for you, not because of what you've done. Grace is unfair to everybody else. Now you say, well, don't they get it? Well, okay, do you think they understand it? Who's the they? Well, the people that don't think like us. <laughs> that's, not always, that's not always correct, is it? We've got to get to that place where we understand favor. Mercy. Is a, is a terribly, it's again an issue of, of, of favor when you don't get what you do deserve. Grace is when you get what you don't deserve. Mercy is when you don't get what you do deserve. See, those are all expressions of favor. We're tracking together? You cannot, you cannot exalt favor in your understanding above silver and gold in a materialistic society without understanding what favor is. Amen. Look at verse 3. A prudent man foresees evil and hides himself. Now, even though these verses can essentially stand by themselves, they also oftentimes tie together with a thread of thinking. So if you bring this same picture of favor forward, this gives the impression that a prudent man, and I'm going to add this, this is me, but a prudent man who processes favor correctly will be able to see into the world of the Spirit, recognizing the difference 
between good and bad and evil and, 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 and blessing and all those kinds of things and live differently. You can actually hide yourself from evil. You say, no, pastor, you don't understand. This is a terrible, evil world. Can you process how to hide yourself from evil by not participating in what the world... You may have to stop feeding yourself some of that junk. Does that make sense? But the simple pass on and are punished. Essentially, they don't process what's going on in the spirit world, so they don't know how to respond to it. And for purposes of our discussion today, they have yet to understand the favor that God offers us to live in a world that's bound by sin. The world is bound by sin. Christians are bound by the word of God. Thinking with me? Sinners are going to sin. Well, that's just what I am. No, you may be a saint who occasionally sins, but when you occasionally sin, it's likely because you forgot or never even knew the favor that God gave you to live in his power apart from sin. That's favor. You say, well, but I live in this terrible world. Well, then stop participating. Hide yourself. And you say, well, I don't know how to do that. You wouldn't even know what was going on in the world outside of your circle if you didn't solicit that information from something outside your circle. Right? I mean, some of you live miles from your nearest neighbor. Now, I'm not advocating you become a hermit. I'm just saying that unless you seek out information... You could potentially live there without any outside information and never lose a bit of what God has for you by seeking. You, you would know when to pray. You would know when to hide yourself. You would know how this works because the favor of God enables you to live your life according to his principles, not according to responding to the principles of the world. Okay, good. Verse number four. By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. Humility, okay, what is humility? Humility is believing that God can do stuff, okay? But, but humility in you means that he can, you can believe that God can do stuff through you. It, it's only humble people that can take the word of God and believe, this is not arrogance, and believe that God would work through you because you understand the favor of God. He chose us. Right? I mean, if you've ever led anybody to the Lord, you were the carrier of the power of the salvation experience. You, you brought that to somebody, put that in their face, they accepted it and began their process. You carried that. So again, this, this idea that humility and the fear of the Lord inside of these things, by these things, or in relationship to the function of these things, there are riches and honor and life. Okay? So you can, again, break down those things. If you're wanting a, a little word study, you know, you can go and figure out how riches doesn't apply to anything physical. You know, you can go and figure out how that honor doesn't apply to anything physical. You can go and understand how life works, you know, and all those kinds of things. Or 
you can really dig into those things and recognize that he's not just talking about spiritual riches, but he's also talking about riches in this life. You say, well, I don't believe in prosperity. It's okay. You don't have to. But part of God's honor and favor of you is the recognition that St. Corinthians says that Jesus became poor so that we might be rich. You can say, well, yeah, but that means this, Pastor. It certainly does mean that. It certainly can be limited, but it also can be expanded to include living in this life, right? right? He, when his disciples came to him and he said, we've given up everything to follow you. He had just taught them about how hard it is for a rich man to get into heaven. He said, we've given up, one thing was Peter. You know, Peter was the first guy to talk and the second guy to think. But, but anyway, he, he, he said, well, we've given up everything. He said, yeah, you'll have houses and family and all that kind of in this life, plus persecution. See, <laughs> when you choose him first, all the other things are added to them. So where's the persecution come from? Well, first of all, it comes from the enemy fighting for you not to understand those things. Second of all, it comes from Christians and other people who fight so that you won't understand it that way. Because it's way easier not to struggle with understanding the revelation of God than to say, you know what, I think it says more than that. Let's press into that. And you say, yeah, but I don't want to be. Do you understand that abuse of the truth does not change the truth? There are lots of people out abusing the truth, but it doesn't change the truth. Amen. Notice it says in verse number five, thorns and snares are in the way of the perverse. <laughs> you could look at this and say, if you have thorns and snares in your life, you might be the second half of this verse. You might be perverse. If you get poked every time you turn from the stickers of life, you might want to see what direction your boat is pointed. Thorns and snares are in the way of the perverse. Now, notice what it says. It says it's in the way. What is that? Anybody ever had a detour in the road? Anyway, now, we've been driving the road west to, to get to Fort Collins for um, the, almost a year now. And they've been fixing those bridges. And every once in a while, there'll be somebody standing out there with a little teeny stop sign acting bored. Stop. And they do this, and then when there's a few cars, they put it up in the air and they wave it like this, right? You've got to stop, got to stop. You wouldn't have to stop. You don't have to stop. You could just pull over and do that. But how many of you recognize that if you don't stop, whatever they're trying to stop you from might create quite a problem for you? Like on the day when they took the top off those bridges between Otis and Plantner or wherever that was, somewhere over there on the other side, they took the tops off those bridges and put a new top in there. If you happen to hit that just right, there's no road right there. You can go around the stop sign. What did he say? He said snares and stickers, thorns, are in the way of the perverse. Literally, they're put there to stop them from continuing to go that direction. It's a detour. You say, well, yeah, but it's kind of a good detour, right? Yeah. So we have to recognize those things. So when we slip up and there are some difficulties, snares, some traps, they're there to get us to turn from the path that we're on. Right? So you gotta, you, you got to be willing to take the detour because the plan that you had took you to an eventual dangerous death. 
That's what the, the writer is saying here. He who guards his soul will be far from them. Notice that it doesn't say anything about the spirit and the flesh here. It's the soul. I am oftentimes smarter than the engineers who design highways. I'm telling you right now, every once in a while, where do these people get their education? They will turn you every which way but the right way to get you to go because it says it. I don't like roundabouts. Now, who thought of those? It just, you pull up to them, it just says yield. Well, okay, but everybody's coming around those things about 15, 20 mile an hour. And, and you know, you, you start inching out there and then you can't really tell how this guy on your left that's coming kind of at you, but then he can go straight all of a sudden. Who designed that? I'm way smarter than that. Do you understand that when you're in the process of life, you spend time determining your own intellect and in how you would handle the circumstance? And so when you run into things that don't go well, you say, well, I'm smarter than that. The number of people that I've dealt with who have had clear addictions that tell me they're not addicted. They can handle their alcohol. I know they can't handle their alcohol. Wonder how I know? Because they can't even take the trash out to hide the number of bottles they drank before they call the pastor to their house. When you walk in and there's like 30 beer bottles sitting around, somebody got an issue. They're not even smart enough to take the trash out. Are you tracking with me? See, those are snares and thorns meant to get you to turn the other direction. I'm always amazed when people smell like a brewery and they'll tell you that they're not drinking. You can't smell that? So the, the, point, the point that I'm trying to get you to see is that you have to recognize that your soul. So look what it says again in the second half of verse 5. He who guards his soul. See, there's an intellectual capacity to dealing with this stuff that we don't always process well. We don't always process well. I am absolutely astounded. Now, if you want to smoke and drink, you can. You can smoke, drink, chew tobacco, chase women, do whatever you think is good for you. Okay, you can do that. There is nothing hindering that other than your choices. Okay? I'm just saying it's just not wise. So if, uh, Tracy and I were, were, were coming home recently and we stopped at a quick stop to buy a, a soda, you know, and, and, and by the way, you know, Soda pops are getting entirely too expensive. You know, $2.50 for a jug of pop. Anyway, stand behind this lady, and she wanted a carton of cigarettes. A carton of cigarettes. $85 for a carton of cigarettes. Now, I don't care. See, I don't care if you smoke. That's not the point. The point is that sooner or later, the cost, just physical cost, of your soulish choices ought to at least set off a bell or two. You say, well now see, if you're not a smoker, and forgive me for, I tried to touch something that just wouldn't necessarily, I mean, it's nobody in this room, okay, but you all know somebody who needs this sermon. So, really, yeah, go home to your family and teach this, could you? And <laughs> make sure whoever needs it, you know, is right there so you can beat them up with it, because that's why we preach, so you can beat up people who don't believe right. 
No, it's not. See, that's your soul again, having an intellectual conversation about how to fix people who make you uncomfortable. And amen, Pastor. Man, that was, I thought that was pretty good, didn't you? The soul, he who guards his soul will be far from them. There is a recognition that needs to come in that decision-making part of you that recognizes this. Okay, let's move on. I, I spent way too much time. Verse number six, I was going to leave this one out because it's one everybody knows. But it says, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, I want to point out something to you about what this says. It does not say to you, train up a child in the way you think they should go. You understand that your children are going to make a choice not based on you browbeating them into submission over what you want them to do, but rather over the information that they grab a hold of to make decisions with. If you will put in the spiritual side of that, the Bible says when they're old, they won't depart from it. Notice that somehow in between child and old is at least a gap of gray. Right? How many of you ever <laughs> watched your children in what I call the gap of gray? It's this gray area. What do we do? What we, we, you know, sooner or later, even in your teenagers, they will tell you they're designed by God to leave your house. They'll start living that way, talking that way, and frustrating you beyond belief. And then you'll say to them, you know, as long as you're living under my house, and then you'll strap down the rules. By the way, rules like locks are for morally upright, honest people. And when somebody wants to make their own choices, including your children, you don't have any guaranteed protection that they won't make a bad choice. What you have is after that gray area, and I'm not saying every child has to wander, but please don't raise your hand, but did any of you wander even just a little bit as a teenager or as a young adult? Did you ever make, <laughs> keep your hand down, Randy. <laughs> Did you ever make a serious, stupid decision that you still think about today? I remember I had an orange car, okay? I love my orange car. I had a black top on it. it had air shocks in the back. This is, this is you know, way back. It, it, you know, ran on dinosaur dung, but, but you know, I mean, it's really, but anyway, <laughs> There's a little hump outside array that I was really sure if you hit it fast enough that you could leave the ground. Okay? So regularly, I would stomp on that mercury and I'd get it wound up. Wound up and wound up. Did you know that if your car leaves the ground, that when it does that, the tires naturally, you know, twist a little bit. And when you hit the ground again, it may send you in a direction you didn't intend to go at a real fast rate of speed. It's not the smartest thing you could do. Did you know that if I had another car that had one of them handbrakes right here? You know that if you grab that handbrake when you're going and pull that thing up, especially in the snow, it'll spin you in a circle. Oh, that's fun until you hit something. See, you can make these really well thought out ideas. And what's the well thought idea? This will really be fun. Yay. You know, in the cars that I drive now, the faster you go, the more you realize how nice they ride. Yeah. 
oh man, it's, it's awesome. It's awesome. How many of you know that occasionally the gray area between being old and being a child is where many of those decisions get made. And by the way, many of us and many of you are not yet to the place of being old. Old is not an age always. <laughs> age oftentimes can bring with it experiential maturity. Age is guaranteed, maturity is optional. Train up a child in the way they should go. And when they're old, they'll not depart from it. Here's what it means. When you put it in as a child, even when you're watching them, put, him in, put them into your children as a child, even when you're watching them make bad decisions, the stuff's still in there. And eventually, God, by his favor, by his grace, by his mercy, by his power, allows them again to come back and make those right choices. It's just an awesome thing. Verse number seven, the rich rules over the poor. The borrower is the servant to the lender. I don't know how much to teach on this one. You, you understand that's where a lot of today's societal mistakes come in. When we borrow more money than we can afford to pay back, and we don't realize that the payment date is a date of subservience. Now, don't raise your hands. But if you've ever not made your payment, sooner or later, the boss calls you and says, um, excuse me, but you haven't made your payment. When I was in business, we had a, one of those big checkbooks. And so I, <clears throat> I had some payments that I'd put in the back of that checkbook, but I'd forgot about it. And so the, the, there were three of them, and these people that I owed money to, or that we owed as a business money to, kept calling me saying, you, you, didn't, ha you didn't pay your bill. And I'd open that checkbook up. I said, yeah, I sent you, you know, check 1,272. Well, we don't have it. I said, well, that isn't my problem. Until one day I dropped that checkbook, and out of the back of it fell these three envelopes with stamps on them. See, they had every right to call me because I was a servant to the system, because I signed the paper in good faith. Please don't believe that your children need their college debt forgiven. If you signed, it, it is an expression of faithfulness. You say, well, wouldn't it be great? No, no. You do not get something for nothing in this world. You know, there is a price to pay if you live here. A better opportunity would have been to go back when you went to college and said, I'm not going to borrow this money. Even if I have to work, I'm going to pay it as I go. You say, oh, we can't do that. Yeah, well, let me just tell you, you can. It's just not as easy. I met with a pastor this week who, who, who wants to build a church debt-free. I said, great idea. I said, if that's your why, you know, from kind of last week, if that's your why, God said, I don't want you to be a servant of the lender, then don't ever let go of that. What if we can't do it? No, you can do it because God said you can. You can't do it in the speed that everybody else might say to you it needs to be done. But you can do it. See, what happens is we give up on those things. 
and we become a servant to the lender. Verse number nine, he who has a generous eye will be blessed. Do you see it? A generous eye. Do you understand that how you see the situation is pretty important? So you're driving down the road and you see that person with the sign at the stoplight that says anything helps. And all you can see, potentially, here's one side of it, all you can see is somebody who's misused their money and needs to get a job. That may not be a generous eye. When you pull up and you see them, your first question should be, God, do you want me to give to them? Why? Because you have a generous eye. You're always looking for the opportunity to give. Not, not to judge. Well, well, I'll give it to them, but I'm, I'm going to take them to McDonald's and buy them a, a meal. You, you have to start with a generous eye. Not with the restriction boundaries that you think. Because see, that, that criticism, that criticalness is what most people face when they're out in that kind of avenue. And they really struggle with how they see the rest of us. And we don't look much like Christ. So, we'll leave that one alone. Verse 13, the lazy man says there's a lion outside. I love this verse. It just makes me laugh. The lazy man says there's a lion outside. I shall be slain in the streets. Okay. <laughs> they may have lived in an area where there's lions. I don't have any idea. But, but I think what he's trying to show us is that occasionally we get wound up over things that are speculative about how things turn out. Now, if there's a lion in the street and the lion is hungry, okay, if you know anything about the, the way lions work, is they're, they're, they're extraordinarily lazy animals. They sleep sometimes between 20 and 22 hours a day. And the thing that God gave them is that guttural noise that they make that causes their prey to freeze. And then they jump on them. Okay? So, so here's the thing. If you go outside, and if there is a lion, and if the lion is hungry, you might die. But look what it says. It says, I shall be slain in the streets. This takes the possibilities and turns it into a thought reality. What I believe God's trying to get across to us is there are all kinds of things that can happen in this world that give us thoughts. And when you build that story and turn it into a reality, that may not be how God wants you to be. To say, well, okay, the lazy man says there's a lion outside. Why is he lazy? Well, is there a lion outside? Maybe you should look. Right? By the way, if the lion is hungry and you're not the first guy on the street, he'll eat your neighbor. I mean, you say, well, that doesn't seem like much solace. I really want you to see how the, the speculation turns into you assuming the worst possible outcome. The worst possible outcome. Amen. Verse 17 and following. I'm going to read three or four verses here, and we'll, we'll probably have to end with this. It says, Incline your ear and hear the words of the wise. Apply your heart to my knowledge, for it is a pleasant thing if you keep them within you. Let them all be fixed upon your lips, let, so that you may trust, 
so that your trust may be in the Lord. I have instructed you today, even you. Have I not written to you excellent things of counsel and knowledge that I may make you know the certainty of the words of truth, that you may answer words of truth to those who send you? This kind of closing passage, and I realize it's not, it's not at the end of all of this, but this kind of closing volley that we're going to use today has all these really interesting things in it that we've heard all throughout Proverbs. Literally tilting your head to hear. Having the words of the wise. You've got to be able to recognize the words of the wise. Does that make sense? When somebody says something to you or, 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 or pushes out a truth that they believe that you cannot put your finger on in the Bible, you need to be very cautious about that. Very cautious about that. There's things floating around out there from people, and it's just nuts. And people are listening to it willy-nilly. When something sounds too good to be true, using worldly principles, it is too good to be true. Because what's too good to be true is that God would send his own son to die for you. That's just simply too good to be true. And that through him you can live a life filled with his power and peace. That's too good to be true. See, but we here, you know, if you'll just, if you'll just, you know, invest your money here. Whenever, whenever anything appeals to your base nature, okay, the, the nature where greed, right, and, 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 and some of those other kinds of things come from, those carnal things, just be real careful. You, you don't want to go down that, that road. Notice it says in the 18th verse, for it's a pleasant thing if you keep them within you. Notice he wants us to use those things as intellectual stability inside our life. Keep those things in you. So when it comes up, you say to yourself, no, that's not wise. Why? Because the biblical truth that God's been giving you pushes that stuff out. Notice what else it says there, verse number 19, so that your trust may be in the Lord. Notice that by keeping those things on the inside of you, by processing those things, you will automatically put your trust in God. Now listen, this is really, really important because what happens is we end up in situations where we have to choose what and who you're going to trust. Okay, so you get a bad health diagnosis. What are you going to trust? Well, they said I have this stuff. What does the Bible say? Well, they're really smart. Who are you going to trust? Now you say, does that mean we can't ever use doctors? No, that doesn't mean that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying go to the doctor with the full understanding of God's principal will in your life. There's nothing wrong with going to a doctor. There's something inherently wrong and evil about a doctor being higher than your God. Right? And so so this is kind of what he's saying here. It says, have I not written to you excellent things? Again, this is, a, this is a perspective of value. I've had some really good things to eat. I mean really good things to eat. But there are a couple of places that have just flat out excellent stuff. And I love the excellent. I have the ability to recognize excellence. Right? Do you? Of course you do. And so he said, I've given you some excellent things. See, sometimes we come to church or we read the Bible and we hear things that don't align themselves very well. They stretch us. 
right? How many of you know the difference between stressing conversation that'll kill you and stretching conversation that'll bless you? They sound a lot alike, but we've got to get to that place where we're saying, okay, God, stretch us here. This is, this is really difficult for us to process. How do we stretch? Well, see, he stretches us with truth that we haven't yet put in to hold inside of ourselves. There are certain truths that we just go, yeah, that can't possibly be right. That I may make known, that I may make you know the certainty of the words of truth, that you may answer words of truth to those who send you. So again, we'll, we'll end there. We'll pick up in, in chapter 23 next week. We're getting close to, to the end. We're going to make a, we're gonna make a, a, a change um, coming up in, in how this was recorded um, and we're going to move probably to the tail end of Solomon's life. And the people who wrote down what he says are now going to be involved in, in the book of Proverbs. So I'll, I'll show you when that happens. But that's coming as you read ahead. You'll, you'll see that, that this is a recording or, or, or written down thing for, for, from, from people who listened to what uh, Solomon likely said. Father, thank you for this day. We bless you, Lord God, for all that you do. We, we bless you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. To subscribe to our podcast, search New Life Eckley in all of the major podcasting apps. Audio and video of our sermons are posted at newlifeeckley.com slash live, and you can watch sermon slices weekdays on social media. Search at New Life Eckley. Our main service is at 10 a.m. Mountain Time every Sunday. Thanks for listening.